and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Vanity Fair and the New York Times. And I'm here today with my super, super special guest, Christine Jacobson. Christine is the Associate Curator of Modern Books and Manuscripts at Houghton Library, Harvard's rare book and manuscript library. She helps to steward, develop, interpret, and teach from the collections from 19, sorry, from 1800 through to the present day, including the archives of one Louisa May Alcott. Christine, welcome to the show. How are you? I am so delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I really love the podcast and I think you're doing amazing work with it. So thanks for having me. And that is a huge compliment coming from you, literally the curator of the Alcott Archives. (laughs) And speaking of that, we have kind of a special announcement while Christine is here, which is you are starting a new collection development area at Houghton. Houghton? Oh my God, it's it's Houghton. Houghton. (laughs) It's Houghton. I'm going to get it right. (laughs) Sorry. So you are starting a new collection development area at Houghton in literary fandom and and derivative works, focusing on Jane Austen, Louisa May Alcott, and Emily Dickinson in its first year. And I know that our guest from last episode, Elena Smith, will be donating the production materials from her show Dickinson to this collection. Christine, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that collection? What's going on there? I would love to. Yeah, I'm so thrilled to hear that Elena is also going to be on the show. She is really special to me. And the show Dickinson is really special to me. And I think it's been huge. We've seen a lot of women and LGBTQI patrons coming through who want to see the Emily Dickinson room. And they're there because they've seen the television show. And that's sort of ignited something in them. And so I think it deserves a place in the collections. I think her work deserves to sit on the shelves with Emily Dickinson's work. And so that's why I was so thrilled when you agreed to also donate (laughs) your research into Alcott's gender identity and the novel that you are working on so that it will also sit on the shelves with Louisa May Alcott's work. I just think that's really incredible. And I'm excited for that first moment when a student walks into a classroom and is going to see maybe an Alcott letter sitting next to your work. I think that's going to (laughs) be really special. Yeah. It's really special even just hearing about it now. Obviously, it's a, just a major full circle moment because I, I like walked in when I was starting out research on Alcott. I walked into your library and said hello to you. <laughs> and so <laughs> you really kind of funny, are isn't it? <laughs> where it all got started. And now here I am almost two years later after that trip with this whole podcast under my belt, having brought my research to a much broader audience, being well into the development of this novel, which we can maybe talk a little bit about off the record <laughs> later, Christine. Sure. Uh-huh. I just, I'm really honored to have even been asked. It's just, I can't really comprehend the notion that my work is going to be sitting next to Alcott's work, like my interpretation of her work and her life and her identity is going to live in the library along with her own words. So It's very special. Thank you for asking. (laughs) Thank you for being so open. Yeah, and I definitely recommend whether you are a researcher yourself or you're just curious and your idea of a fun vacation is reading a bunch of old letters, head over to the Houghton Library. It's a very special place. Once in therapy, we did a grounding exercise and my therapist asked me to imagine a calm room and I just brought myself back into the reading room. (laughs) I don't know if you feel that way about it (laughs) as someone who works there every day. <laughs> but for me, it was a very. I'm just so space. glad to hear that was your experience at the reading room, and I yeah. might have to share that with my colleagues because I think that would make them yeah. very happy. 
<laughs> yeah, it was basically for a month. My entire job was just showing up at the library and, and reading some beautiful old May Alcott diary where she's writing about her hot girl summer at the beach and and whatnot, or going through old receipt books and invoices and being sorry, this is in 1800s money and she was making this much. <laughs> and just very special place, very special experience. And just, in, extra, I can't, I, I really can't believe my stuff is going to be there too. <laughs> so well, thank I you again, Well, I absolutely can. You're bringing new audiences to Alcott, right? Which is what Elena did with Dickinson. And it's what I think some people are doing with Austin. You know, so when we have stage adaptations of Little Women in the archives, why not yeah. have also have 21st century adaptations and work that looks at that? Yeah. And I also think that these three authors, and I hope they're just the beginning, yeah. and I won't go on too much about this, but I think what's really <laughs> interesting about them is that they don't just continue to have scholarship and readers, but that they continue to have fans. And I'm really yes. interested in yes. why that is. And I don't know the answer, but I'm hoping scholars will come and use our collections to to help answer it. Oh, fantastic. Well, yes. And it will be very cool to be even just a teeny little part of that. So yeah. again, thank you. And now I have to ask, this might be a bit obvious given what we've talked about, but what is your relationship to Little Women? Yeah, absolutely. So it's very tight up with my work. And in fact, I'd never read Little Women until I worked um, at Houghton Library, which I used to feel ashamed of. But now after listening to your podcast and also talking with other people about it, I know that's actually quite yeah. common. So I read it when I was nearly 30. I was I had been working at the library for about a year when I got a request from a faculty member named Amy Hollywood, who I just think has one of the great all-time great yeah. names in it. Really good. <laughs> academia. <laughs> she wanted to bring her class on Little Women to the library to see the collections. And that was at a time when I was still feeling a lot of what's the word? Not imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Thank you. Okay. About working at Harvard and engaging with Harvard <laughs> faculty. And I thought there's no way I can admit to this person that I've never read Little Women. <laughs> so I did a deep dive. I immediately downloaded mm -hmm. the audiobook, narrated by Barbara Caruso, which was wonderful. And I watched the 1949 film version, which I still love to this day. That's the one with Elizabeth Taylor as Amy. Yes. And I did a deep deep dive into the stacks. I just would go down and I would spend time reading the Alcott family papers, their letters, their diaries, looking at what books they owned so that I could feel prepared for this class. But the class actually was in the summer of 2019, which ended up being a very <laughs> fortuitous time to acquaint myself with the collection. No because kidding, of course, yeah. a few months later, Greta Gerwig's <laughs> film came out. And then the next year of my life was completely absorbed by Little Women. <laughs> Journalists were coming. They wanted to see the collection and write about it. I was asked to write an article about it after, this will sound familiar, Peyton, after writing a viral <laughs> Twitter thread about the film's relationship to print and publishing. And so I was going and seeing the film all the time and scribbling notes in the back of the theater in the dark because they didn't have on-demand streaming at that time. Yeah. And it was just, it was the joyful, joyful year of my life, just completely consumed by Little Women and could not have been more pleased about it. I would say on a less professional note, maybe on a more personal note, I was really glad that I read it at the age that I did. I think you've talked with some of your guests about the sort of moralizing, extremely Protestant nature of this yes. novel. <laughs> and I grew up in an evangelical Southern mega Methodist church. And I think oh, if boy. I had read it as a teenager, I would have 
close the book immediately because I was just so allergic to that type of thing. And if I had Mm -hmm. read it as an adolescent, I may have even taken away some of the wrong lessons. Mm -hmm. So I was so pleased to read it as a 30-year-old when, you know, I could take what I wanted from it and I could read it through a different lens. But I I love the novel so much. And I also have a really great, I have a very special relationship with the Mm -hmm. films, which maybe we'll talk about as well. But yeah. I'm sure we will. This is kind of, it's funny, this chapter, it's not a super plot heavy chapter, but it's kind of the moment from the Greta Gerwig film. It so I'm absolutely sure we'll talk is about the that. moment. Yeah, I agree. The moment. <laughs> and so now, which March sister are you? Keep in mind, Lori is a March sister for the purposes of this podcast. I'm so glad that you include Lori because I think I'm mostly a Meg with a soupçon of Lori. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think, you know, with, when it comes to Meg, you know, we're both consummate rule followers, very <laughs> anxious and about everyone else and making sure they're following the rules, but also mm-hmm. that they're well taken care of. <laughs> something we definitely have in common. And on the more personal note, I think Meg struggles a lot with her sort of lot in life. Yeah. You know, she knows she should be grateful for what she has, but she can't help wanting more. And I think mm-hmm. she sort of struggles to buck expectations for her with the ease that some of her sisters possess. And I find that very relatable. We're also both total clothes horses. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just want that silk yardage. I get Meg. Yeah, I think we're both obsessed with clothing and textiles and fashion yep. history. And I envy Amy's ability to make the most with very little. You know, she's got that innate style where she's like, I'm just going to wear a lot of tool because yes. that's cheap no, and I, it's I in fashion it. and yeah. it's effective. And Meg just wants what everybody else has and what is the yeah. most luxurious. And I <laughs> identify with that. And I also have to say on a superficial note, Meg and I have the same wedding florist in the Greta Gerwig film. So shout out to Copper Penny Florals in Concord, Massachusetts. (laughs) Hold on. Record scratch. Pause. I need to know more. You have the same wedding florist as Meg March. Yeah. Well, so in the Greta Gerwig film, when they (laughs) got, they, you know, they filmed in Concord and they got the local florist and there's only one game in town to do the flowers for that scene. (laughs) And I shopped around, I got married in Boston, but all of the Boston florists were way too expensive. And so I found them, I got married before Meg. So this is totally serendipitous. I didn't do it because they were Meg's flowers. (laughs) (laughs) So you're, you started the trend. Meg wants to be you. In some ways, Meg is a Christine. Think about oh it. Oh my God. Oh my God. I'll be thinking <laughs> about that all for coming weeks. together. Yeah. yeah. So do you, I mean, do you think Meg would be a librarian? Do you see that for her? Oh, that's so interesting. I don't see any of them as librarians, <laughs> okay. really. Yeah. I don't know. That's a, I'll think about yeah. that. That's a great question. And then the Lori, the soup song of Lori is just because we're <laughs> both only children. And I think we both okay. very much fit the stereotype yes. of <laughs> only children in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we know that. Joe certainly makes use of her library. She freaks out the librarians by learning, by asking them all kinds of questions about poison and murder when she's writing her sensation stories. That's so, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at least someone is using the library of not being a librarian in this book. Oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I would also like to say, I sort of, obviously, when I did my trip, I sort of fell down a rabbit hole and I was trying to visit as many of the filming locations as I could when I was, this was in, when I was doing my archival research as well. And I learned that the house where Joe and Lori have their dance on the balcony is a wedding venue. So I will be getting married there. I don't know when or to whom, but it will, (laughs) that will be the place. (laughs) You have to. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to get your flowers from Copper Penny Florals. So. Yes, I do. 
Absolutely. <laughs> so now that we've got that wedding planning aside, yeah. Christine, will you recap chapter 42, All Alone? I would be so happy to. <laughs> Happy. So in this, yeah, <laughs> I am happy too, because this chapter means so much to me. And I was okay. so pleased that you offered it to me as an option. Yeah. So in this chapter, who do we find all alone? We find Joe all alone. And I actually looked at Greta Gerwig's script for this scene and her notes for this scene actually have a sort of beautiful background note, which is that everyone is gone. Meg has left by marriage, Amy left by voyage to Europe, Lori left because she rejected him, and Beth was taken from this life. So this is how we find Joe. So she's at home with her parents, and she's essentially reduced to only child status. And she is yeah. struggling to fill that role. And she is, you know, really doing her best to fill the house with her cheerful presence, but she's kind of losing heart. And she's sort of introspective about why is that? Why yeah. I used to always be so happy at home. Why am I no longer happy at home? And she has this really moving heart to heart with Marmy, where she confesses her loneliness. And we also see Marmy encourage Joe to take up her writing again, which she does. Yes. And that's about it, because as you said, there's not yeah. a lot of plot going on in, in this chapter. <laughs> no, it's not plot heavy. It's a lot of Joe's interior and her thinking through her life with a, like a heavy, heavy dose of editorializing from Alcott looking over Joe. And it's yeah. interesting here to look at the places where Joe the character and Alcott the author are separate from one another, because the way that mm -hmm. by the end of this chapter, Joe sort of makes peace with the situation is digging up a letter from Professor Bear and going, oh, he was kind of a hottie, wasn't he? Or I miss my poor, <laughs> I miss my poor Fritz, which is not something that Alcott did in her own life to resolve this sort of loneliness, this essential loneliness. So I think I would love to think more about and that element of this chapter and where mm. Joe ends and Alcott begins, because mm. even just the admission here of consideration that maybe if Lori came back now, mm -hmm. then maybe she would say yes. And this whole conversation she has with Meg, where they're comparing Joe to a chestnut and saying she's prickly on the outside, but soft on the inside. And it'll just take the right man to come and pick her off the tree. All of which I hate, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Just be uh, yeah. And Joe does like, too, right? Because yes. Joe says something like, yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah. What is frost opens chestnut burrs, ma'am, and it takes a good shake to bring them down. Boys go nothing. Yeah. They sure do. And I don't care to be bagged exactly. by them. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which when I read this, I thought it was so funny because, you know, I'm like, this is not even what we're really talking about, Joe. And you've just brought no. <laughs> the sort of heterosexuality into it. But yeah. I love it. She's just constantly reminding everyone, just in case you forgot, <laughs> I'm not getting but, married. <laughs> I'm not getting married. But even then, we have this knowing wink from the narrator that, oh, this dummy, she thinks she's not gonna get boys may not, she might not want to get bagged up by a boy, but it's a man who can reach up and pluck her off the tree. Which again, I, it's a very odd posture for Alcott to be taking, considering everything we know about her and the choices that she made in her own life. And it's a very difficult read. I imagine it's kind of amazing in some ways that Gerwig was able to just distill it into that one scene <laughs> because it's such a mess. It's so all over the place. I mean, in, in the most fascinating way possible, there's so much for us to dig through here. But it really is maybe nowhere else in the book is that radical impulse more at war with the Protestant heteronormative one. Right. <laughs> wow. Yes. Yeah. I think, yeah, there are a lot of things in this chapter that are sitting uneasily with one another. Right. And I think yes. that is actually kind of not to 
I hope that Alcott will forgive me, but I yeah, think what yeah. Gerwig does so beautifully in her scene from the 2019 yeah. film starring Saoirse Ronan, this is a mm-hmm, scene between mm-hmm. Saoirse Ronan and Laura Dern as Marmy, and mm-hmm. it distills what I think is the main problem in her life at this time, which is that she's incredibly lonely, but everyone else around her is doing things that make them feel fulfilled, yeah. and they have, they're entering, they are transitioning to adulthood. And Joe is so reluctant to leave childhood and enter yeah. adulthood, but now she knows she can't be, she can't fight it any longer because she's unhappy. So she can fight it as long as she's happy to be at home, right? <laughs> yeah. But now she's not happy anymore. Yeah. So how does she move forward? And she doesn't have any examples in her life no. of what an authentic or viable adulthood looks like to her. No, not at all. She has no roadmap. There's marriage is completely off the table for her. She thinks so at this point. She's not traveling abroad like Amy. She's not. She's tried her hand at this point at publishing a novel and it didn't go well. And she put her pen away at this point. She doesn't know what to do. She has taken on the role here of looking after her parents, which actually it was common in larger families for one child, usually a daughter, to remain unmarried and look after the parents in their old age. It wasn't so weird that real-life Alcott didn't get married and instead was sort of devoted to her parents as they aged and died. Totally. And so it wouldn't be unusual necessarily for Joe to do that. But what we hear from her here is despair came over her when she thought of spending all her life in that quiet house, devoted to humdrum cares, a few poor little pleasures, and the duty that never seemed to grow any easier. I can't do it. I wasn't meant for a life like this, and I know I shall break away and do something desperate if someone don't come and help me. So that's not enough for her. (laughs) No. And yeah, I think it's so interesting how we get the the author voice from Alcott saying, Mm -hmm. now, if she had been the heroine of a yeah. moral storybook. Yeah. She ought at this period of her life to have become quite saintly and have, have had no problem. And I think it's yeah. really lovely that Gerwig puts this in Joe's voice in the scene. Mm-hmm. The line is, if I were a girl in a book, this would all be so easy. Yes. I'd give up the world yes. happily. So not only there's a fictional reality where this is a totally normal route to take. And there's also, there's a real life, you know, route to take Mm -hmm. with this where it's fine to just continue living with your family. But she already notices in herself that this isn't going to be her path. And that's upsetting and and scary. Yeah. Yeah. And if we take this in the context of the novel coming right on the heels of Beth's death, right? In many ways, I think she's trying to do what Beth did, which was be the angel of the home and a comfort to everybody. And I don't know, look, be saintly, right? yeah. look after mother and father, which I, Beth was never really in a caretaking role, right? But I think what we see here is Joe sort of trying to emulate the martyr spirit of Beth and just being and feeling deeply how sad and unfulfilling it is, mm-hmm. which is a very complicated thing to sit with, right? Because we're supposed to remember, even now, Joe is trying to remember Beth as this saintly figure and trying to live after her and is realizing how lonely and sad it is. 
Yeah, I think, yeah, you see that in the beginning of the chapter, right? She's trying to Mm -hmm. her domesticity very cheerfully. And she's like, I can do the domestic part, but I can't do the cheerful part. And she also, she's sitting with Meg and she's noticing that Mm -hmm. Meg is, has, you know, grown as a person. Yeah. And she even puts on that marriage hat for a second and Mm -hmm. wonders if she were to marry that she would also improve as Meg has improved. And I think what she's noticing is that, well, which she's misdiagnosing Mm -hmm. it. Right. You know, Meg is growing because she wanted to be married and have kids and she has had them. And so she feels fulfilled. That's not how Joe is going to be fulfilled. Mm But I think it's these two moments in the beginning of the chapter where she's trying on the Beth hat and she's trying on the Mm -hmm. Meg hat. I think those are the two things that spark the realization that she is sort of doomed if she's going to stay there. And then she tries on the Amy hat and is like, maybe I should marry Lori. <laughs> or and maybe if, really, if, like, yeah. let me think about how it would be if I married Lori. She sort of tries to be like, am I a Beth? Am I a Meg? Am I an Amy? Which Mark's very meta. Am I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. And you know what else is funny? I Notably, what she enjoys about being with Meg is... When they talk, about, it's not like John Brooke is there being charming and delightful. And she's like, oh, you've got a pretty good guy here. Look, they're, they're, it's Meg and the children. And that's the conversation they're having is about marriage. So we might actually read it as a conversation about parenthood. Children are so cute. They're making a really good case for parenthood, right? Which is something that Joe observes. It's just like, these are so cute. I need to get me some of these. <laughs> and we know that Alcott was not, there's no expression in Alcott's like, archive of her wanting to be married. But she loved children. She took a really active role in raising her sister's children. She adopted her younger sister, May's daughter, Lulu, after May passed away. And just the latter years of her diary are just full of expressions of love for her baby and the difficulty she has disciplining her because she can't bring herself to be tough. She just loves this kid so much. There's one point where there's sort of a slur in the paper against suffragists who just want to abandon children in the home. And she writes this passionate letter saying, my entire life has been devoted to children, to storytelling for them and charitable causes and looking after my family's children. How dare you? So for all of Alcott and Joe's kind of gender discomfort, they still want to be parents, which is interesting and it's funny that even in this chapter, the context that Joe thinks parenting might be desirable is in a platonic context with another woman, her sister. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. The man in the equation is not on the page here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it makes total sense to me that Joe can't fathom marriage, but she can fathom parent parenting because yeah. that's all of the important relationships in her life are with yeah. her family. Yeah. And there aren't a ton of great examples of marriage <laughs> no. in the book and in, in Alcott's life. Although, yeah. you know, John Brooke, I, I do think John and Meg have a really lovely relationship. Yeah. And my yeah. husband reminds me of John Brooke. So Aww. I have a soft spot for him. <laughs> But yeah. So that's why you're a Meg. <laughs> that's another reason I'm a Meg. I'm in a very traditional a heterosexual yes. marriage with John Brooke. Well, <laughs> well, and in this, we see time and time again in this second chapter that John and Meg will fall into kind of the pitfalls that heterosexual couples face and then will crawl back out through Alcott's radical politicking about actually, John should help with the kids and you should be able to have difficult conversations, right? It's Yes, and even just portraying them and not like Meg and John are off the page after Mm -hmm. their marriage is so radical. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. 
Because it would be so easy to send, I mean, as, as she did at the end of the first book, kind of send Meg off to the wedding and that's the end of Meg. It's happily ever after. But to actually stay there in the situation where, okay, you have been married. It's two o'clock in the morning. The jam won't set. The babies are screaming. How do we make that work? That very unromantic depiction of motherhood in a book for children. I think that's today we don't really get that, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I, yeah. I think it's <sighs> so here. Joe sees a future for herself of kind of the hats that she tries on, it seems Meg's hat might fit her the best, which is interesting. <laughs> but only part of Meg's hat, the raising adorable <laughs> children part. And it's interesting as well, the children really come. Otherwise, we might think of Joe in this chapter as being quite depressed. Mm -hmm. It's not surprising that having spending a nice afternoon with her sister and a couple of babies will cheer her up. Mm -hmm. This period in Joe's life sort of maps onto the period in Alcott's life after Elizabeth Alcott died and mm -hmm. Anna got engaged, where Alcott was considering suicide. And I think when I've read Alcott biographies, they mention around this point, she seriously considered an attempt, but then it sort of went away. And I found reading her journals that especially in the later years of her life, it seemed she was actually suicidal quite often. She was in a lot of physical pain toward the end of yeah. her life. And mm -hmm. we'd, we'd get statements in her journal that were along the, I'm not, this isn't a direct quote, but I sort of wish I would go, right? Or I'm in a lot of pain. Yeah. So I was really touched to learn, and this is a note from John Madison's and Annotated Little Women on this section, which is, mm -hmm. after Alcott told her parents that she had considered suicide, Bronson Alcott started spending more time with her, escorting her to dinner and to lectures, asking her about her plans and prospects, and encouraging her to send stories to more prestigious magazines. So he was kind of taking on the role that Marmee does here, which is, well, writing made you happy, <laughs> right? Oh, my goodness. He's such yeah. a complicated character, but <laughs> he, he's he, such he, a champion of her writing career in I know. such a lovely way. Yeah. yeah. He really stepped up for her in this difficult moment in ways that maybe his own struggles with mental health had enabled him to do, right? Because he'd mm -hmm. also struggled with suicidality and knew how bleak it could be. And it seemed bringing her into the world and the intellectual world mm -hmm. and encouraging her talents was sort of the thing that got her through. I think that's Another a great thing. and a really beautiful yeah. observation, Peyton. Yeah. 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 I just, you know, we talk a lot of shit about Bronson on this <laughs> podcast, but you know what? Yeah. He came through. He showed up for her. He showed up for her in a really important way. And also another journal entry from around this time when she's recovered from this kind of period of suicidality. She says, it seemed so mean to turn and run away before the battle was over that I went home, set my teeth, and vowed I'd make things work in spite of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So that's very hardcore. That's Alcott's Whoa. metal band lyrics. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to know, what do you think she means when she says the world, the flesh, and the devil? Is she talking about fleshly desire? Is she saying mm. her illness, her mm. physical body? What is going on here? Oh, my goodness. I feel like you could ask a lot of different people this question, yeah. <laughs> and everybody would have a different answer. And I, yeah. I do find the discussions around her health and mm -hmm. the amount of pain she was in for a yeah, lot of her life yeah. really compelling. So I think that's mm -hmm. a very sensible reading. If yeah. I could throw out a really wild reading. <laughs> Ooh, yes. Yeah. Uh, when I first read this novel, mm -hmm. I was really into the writer. I had just gotten really into the writer Barbara Pym, which Ooh. if listeners don't know Barbara Pym, she's a mid-century English novelist who was 
was a spinster herself and wrote mm-hmm. about spinsters. And in the early 2010s, there was this sort of movement amongst women who were into Barbara Pym and, and other writers of her elk to kind of reclaim the word spinster. And there's a great New Yorker mm-hmm. article about this from 2015 by Hannah Rosefield called Barbara Pym and the New Spinster. And so when I thought about Louisa May Alcott and Joe, I was often coming with a very strong lens in defense of the spinster read and what a glorious spinster (laughs) Louisa May Alcott was and what a glorious spinster (laughs) Joe March could have been. (laughs) And there are a couple of times in the novel where Joe March says he wants to be a literary spinster very plainly. (laughs) And I was like, we should take Joe (laughs) at her word. So, you know, when I think about overcoming the flesh. I think about what is everybody always going on about? I couldn't care less <laughs> about all this stuff. I just want to be left alone to do my work and be fulfilled from things other than love, which is mm-hmm. another reason why the Gerwig scene resonates with me so much, because that yeah. is literally the line. It's like women are made for other things. <laughs> yes, yes. So yeah. I don't know if anybody is going to be on that wavelength with me, no. but that's what I'm bringing Completely. to the table. <laughs> I think I'm saying I'd make things work in spite of the world is saying I am going to continue to do me <laughs> in yes. the most serious sense. Yes. No matter what anyone says, right? We're talking about outside influences, the flesh, maybe her illness, maybe what she understood of her desires and her identity that didn't, again, match with the world. And well, yeah. the right? There's just so much there. And there's so much in this chapter because the moment right before Joe jumps into marriage and is like, Mm -hmm. well, this is the solution, I guess, for my loneliness and this purposelessness that I'm feeling. I think that's, she. in addition to being lonely, she sort of is grappling with what is like, why am I here? What is my purpose on this earth? It's not to be a Beth and stay at home and be good and look after my parents. It's, you know, Meg is selling me pretty hard on marriage, but I don't think that's it for me either. And maybe if Lori came back and things were different, I would say yes, just because I'm so lonely. But I know in my heart, that's not really the answer either. Although, I don't, it's just, it makes me wonder if what we're getting from Mark, because it's Marmy who raises the possibility. She says, I didn't tell you that Amy and Lori were going about this because I thought you might be upset. I thought maybe you would want to reconsider, which is sort of in contrast to Marmy's earlier lack of endorsement, shall we say, of the Joe and Lori match, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Marmy wouldn't like it is one of the things that Joe throws in Lori's face when he proposes. Right. right? Yes. Uh Yeah. And now Marmy's saying, maybe I was wrong. Is that what she's at? Or I think she's noticing Mm. this difference in her daughter, right? And thinking, oh, no, I wonder if she regrets her choice. I think that's what she's drawing out in Joe. Let me read. Yeah. I knew you were sincere then, Joe, when he proposed and she refused. But lately, I have thought that if he came back and asked again, you might perhaps feel like giving another answer. Forgive me, dear. I can't help seeing that you are very lonely. And sometimes there is a hungry look in your eyes that goes to my heart. Mm. So I fancied that your boy might fill the empty place if he mm. tried now. You're right. It's more ambiguous. Yeah. Does Marmy want that? Does she think it's yeah. right? Or does she just want Joe to not be so lonely? Yeah. Well, and at any rate, it's too late. Right. <laughs> Amy and Lori are an item. 
their Facebook official. Okay, not to keep bringing up the great genius of our time, Greta Gerwig, but (laughs) I think that is another thing that is so brilliant about this scene is, I don't know if you remember, but at the Mm -hmm. time that they filmed this scene in the film, Mm -hmm. they have not received news yet that Lori and Amy are engaged. And so the discussion is totally Mm -hmm. hypothetical, but also totally viable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Saoirse Ronan says, if he were to come back and ask me again, I think I'd say yes. And Marnie is in the very difficult position of saying, but do you love him? And then she has to ask again, but do you love him? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And navigating that, which I think just brings all of those feelings a little bit more sharply Mm -hmm. to the fore than what this not what this chapter is doing. Yeah. Which it would make sense for like cinematic Mm -hmm. reasons. But I think also just Mm -hmm. really gets to the heart of the matter, which is that Joe is desperately lonely and Marmy sees that. Lori as a potential solution, but she knows that it's not the yeah. the right solution and is trying to guide Joe to to realize right. that herself. Yeah. 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 Again, Greta takes kind of this swirling feelings mass in this chapter and sort of refines it and directs it so that the stakes are more clear. Another thing that Gerwig does is after they have this conversation, Joe writes Lori a love letter and puts it in the mailbox in the woods. Amy and Lori come home and Joe's like, oh shit, and runs, <laughs> and runs to the mailbox, gets the letter and rips it up. And as she's standing over the bridge, she throws the letter into the water. She looks down at the water. We get a good shot of that rushing water. And Alcott's, sorry, Gerwig's script notes make clear that this is a reference to Alcott's own consideration of suicide around that period mm. in her life. Which is something like that's a kind of a deep cut. It took it was third or fourth watch that I even noticed (laughs) that she was standing on a Uh bridge looking into the water. And I was like, oh, (laughs) yeah, but the pain here is so acute and Mm -hmm. she's looking for anything to resolve it. And then along with Lori, I should say there is some suggestion from Marmy that Joe simply be patient and wait for the greatest lover of all to fill her loneliness, (laughs) by which she means Jesus Christ himself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's, what do we make of that? (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) Do you have the passage? Let me pull that up. Okay. There are plenty to love you, so try to be satisfied with father and mother, sisters and brothers, friends and babies, till the best lover of all comes to give you your reward. It's a little ambiguous. I'm not convinced it's God. Okay. Because then Joe replies immediately, yeah. mothers are the best lovers in the world. So she's saying, you uh-huh. are. Uh-huh. She's like, You're better than Jesus, That's mom. So, yeah. <laughs> she, yeah, she completely is like, oh, I love you, mom. I'm not even going to engage the Jesus thing, which is very yeah. grown, queer, child behavior. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to get around this with complimenting you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Marmy is so complicated mm-hmm. for me, she and I, I think you've, yeah. you've had you've had really moving mm-hmm. conversations about this with other guests. But mm-hmm. I deeply love Marmy, and the former raised in an evangelical church, me also just needs yeah. to like kind of tune Marmy out sometimes. Yeah, and this may be one of those times. I'm choosing to believe yeah. that Marmy thinks there is a soulmate out there for Joe. What's your reading of it? Well, yeah, I I do read that as the greatest lover at all. I don't think she's talking about like Fabio coming over the hills. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a reference to Jesus and how our ultimate fulfillment must come from God. But it's funny how then on the very next page, she pulls out the photo of Friedrich and is like, ooh, (laughs) I miss him. (laughs) There is where we are pointing to a literal greater lover 
in the context of the story. I, Friedrich is difficult for me, as you know. I, I don't think we need to dwell on him too much right now. But even as we end the chapter, it's so... We, you hear that she's sorrowfully and patiently wondering why one sister should have all she asked, the other nothing. Yeah. Joe really feels in this moment that she has nothing, even as she has made her family and her home the center of her world. Mm-hmm. And Amy's happiness woke the hungry longing for someone to love with heart and soul and cling to while God let them be together. And I, that language is gender neutral. I'll note that. Yep. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's not, she's not, we don't get Joe yearning for a husband. Although later on, we, that kind of desire is directly placed onto Bear. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think knowing what we know about Alcott's attraction to women, it's very possible that some of that sorrow and loneliness here is coming from the plain fact of actually, I can't have what I want. <laughs> that just does not seem to be a viable option, which is to be a man and to love women. Right. Yeah, I think that subtext is totally infusing this whole chapter yeah. with a really yeah. exquisite pain. Mm-hmm. I also have to say that this passage totally blows my spinsterhood theory out of the water, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I gave up a long yeah. time ago. But yeah, I think you're absolutely yeah. right. And it, it goes back to her just, I think, really feeling the loss because she doesn't have she doesn't have a roadmap yeah. to what she wants. No, no. And another funny thing here is, there's a passage where we've talked about this a little bit, but this exact passage, this phrasing, Joe wasn't a heroine. She was only a struggling human girl. Mm. And it's so funny to read that now. And of course, Joe is the heroine to all of us, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so for, for Alcott to spell it out and be like, listen, no, she's not, right? Yeah. I think in a, in a lot of ways, Joe March has sort of been flattened in the culture, right? Yes. Yes. She's the the tomboy who loves to write and her and and there's just so much more than that, right? She is the tomboy, she loves to write and that's still not enough somehow. It's not enough for her. <laughs> You're so right. I think you had a guest on the show recently who had only read yeah. the first book of Little Women. Yes, yeah. And I'm just I I I totally get not wanting to read the second, but I really hope yeah. that they do because, mm-hmm. you know, I think we get such a more complex yeah. Joe yeah. in the second book and it is like even if you don't love seeing her get together with Professor mm-hmm. Bear, there is this sort of lovely evolution of her finding yeah. her voice as a writer and finding fulfillment in her identity as a writer if she can't yeah. find fulfillment in her identity as a wife, which is, I have yeah. to say, <laughs> again, the beautiful thing about Greta Gerwig, so because she gives that back to yep. Joe, and yeah. that is the yeah. crowning moment for Joe. Yeah. yeah, Is the publication of the novel, and just very cheekily folding in Professor Bayer as the storybook ending that Joe really doesn't have any interest in, which another, just about the way that screenplay is constructed. Yeah. With all of these other film adaptations, the third act just kind of inevitably drags because we are plodding towards Bear, and we all know it. And, and I have gotten letters from Bear enthusiasts, and I respect you. But I think one of the things that Gerwig does is get him out of the way first thing, right? With the nonlinear timeline, he's in yeah. the first 10 minutes, and then he is swept off the page. Joe gets to tell him off, and then he's gone. But... Yeah, Gerwig gives Joe the novel being published as her happy ending. What I think is even more interesting about the original text is that 
Alcott doesn't do that. Alcott lets Joe publish a novel and have it kind of flop and be disappointing. (laughs) And has Joe sort of put Uh the pen away and be too bummed out to write anything and get some bad advice about her writing from a guy who doesn't know what he's talking about. (laughs) And she has to come back to it now on her own terms, doing a a kind of writing she's never done before, right? Because the kind of only non-bummer part of this chapter is that Marmee's like, you know what? You were happy when you were writing. Why don't you try doing that again? And Joe's like, honestly, I doubt that I can. And within a half hour, seated at her desk, scribbling away on the old manuscripts, right? But she's writing truthful, simple stories now, we hear. Mm -hmm. And they're making her money, right? They're making her comfortable. We learn that she's bringing in some income. The feedback they're getting is, it's not polarizing like the feedback around her novel was. It's like she's coming to a different kind of literary accomplishment now because she's sort of been through the fire and tried a few different things. And now she's finding her voice, which I think is a more realistic way. I understand why we want the triumphant happily ever after version of publishing the novel. But (laughs) this isn't like Joe publishes a novel and that's that. This is like Joe builds a career and tries different things and finds her footing, which is a lot maybe less sexy and eye-catching, but it's (laughs) I don't know. It's a lot more realistic and encouraging for people who have been in that trying to make a career out of writing Bog. I don't know. I'm very I might be very much personally projecting here. No, it's in- your perspective is yeah. really interesting because I think there are different readings mm-hmm. of this. I was looking at one of the annotated editions, and I don't remember mm-hmm. which because I think it was the Daniel Sheely annotated, and he yeah. includes a note from the scholar Judith Federley about this mm-hmm. specific paragraph where mm-hmm. Marmy says, "Write something for us, and never mind the rest of the world. Try it, dear. Yeah. I'm sure it would do you good and please us very much." Mm-hmm. And Judith is very alarmed at this. She says that because her writing yeah. isn't her own; it belongs to her family. Oh, so she, when she's okay. finding, okay. she finds success yeah. and commercial success in writing these <laughs> fun blood and thunder stories. <laughs> but when she makes a different kind of success in this new novel that she's writing, <laughs> it doesn't belong to her. It belongs okay, to her family. Yeah, I don't know what yeah. you think of that no. comment. Yeah, I think. There's obviously a degree to which all of Alcott's writing was economic, right? And every time she made money, basically, she would write in her journal, this is going to buy this for this member. Yeah. Uh (laughs) She was the breadwinner. And toward the end of her life, when she's really struggling, toward the end of her life, she's gooping. She's like, these are the weird medical treatments that I'm trying out and hope they might work. I'm doing an oatmeal bath. I'm eating only eggs. (laughs) Today, I'm trying this weird diet. Truly gooping, God bless. Even then, she's like, I just have to do this so that I can make sure that Meg and the boys are okay. Meg, Meg, sorry, Anna and the boys are okay. (laughs) I just have to get through this so that I can not worry about Lulu. In a real sense, the writing didn't belong to her. There's very little of it that was for her own enjoyment, certainly in the later years where it was hurting her and making her head hurt to write. Yeah, And that sucks. I wonder, as you were speaking, I was thinking about someone like Emily Dickinson, whose writing was truly just for her, right? Mm -hmm. Her writing was in a drawer for me or for my lover across Mm -hmm. the way. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until after her death that these poems were even published, right? Yeah. And something I would recommend again, we we just talked about Dickinson in the last episode with Elena, but the second season of that show is about Emily Dickinson's grappling with, do I want to be published or is fame even worse? 
And she has this difficult moment where she's literally invisible and she's going around the town and hearing everyone's uncensored thoughts about her work. And Mm -hmm. it's very similar to Joe's reaction to the feedback she gets about her novel, which is this is way too overwhelming. I just I can't do this anymore. I can't. But there's no suggestion that even though Marmy says, oh, just write for us, somehow the stories are getting sold and they're being published. (laughs) She's not sitting around the fireplace and reading these stories to her parents or to I think it says that her father sends them without yeah. her oh, knowing, okay. right? <laughs> to some magazines, which yes. sounds a lot like Bronson. That's Bronson vibes for sure. Yeah. That's, it, it is interesting mm-hmm. to contrast them. You know, Joe never yeah. frets once about mm-hmm. becoming famous, a famous author, yeah. although she does publish anonymously <laughs> for yep. most of her writing career. Yes, she does. <laughs> which is, yeah. Yeah. I love that you brought up Dickinson. I don't do you know that they have the exact same publisher, Thomas Niles at the Roberts Brothers? Not during Dickinson's life or not during Dickinson's like, life. After? No, yeah. but Thomas Niles wrote to Emily <laughs> many times trying to convince her to publish his poem her poems with him. I didn't know that. And Higginson ah! and Mabel go to Thomas and he is well, they go to <laughs> several publishers, and Thomas yeah, Niles yeah. is the first person who is not like these poems <laughs> are crazy. <laughs> He's the first person who sees promise in wow. them. And in fact, you next time you're at Houghton, if you look at the yeah. Roberts Brothers letterhead when they're writing to Lisa May Alcott, they have yeah. this beautiful half sun sort of uh, embossment on the, the yeah. top of their letterhead. And it's yes. their authors that they're excited about that year. And almost uh-huh. half of them are women. It's incredible. Wow. Yeah. So the Thomas Niles has such a special place yeah. in my heart. I don't think that we've celebrated him enough. No, I... <laughs> And I think that he has played his foil in Greta Gerwig's Mr. Dashwood is played so well and (laughs) is so lovely. And it is why I will always hate the 1994 version Mm -hmm. where they made, they replace Mr. Dashwood is replaced by someone named James Fields and the door, it says Tickner and Fields. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure all of your listeners screaming at their cell phones right now because James T. Fields is the person who told Louisa May Alcott, stick to teaching. You can't write. So why did they do that? No. And the film is a bogus creative choice, and I no. never forgive them for it. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree. My guess is someone just didn't do... Well, I guess they did. Did they have Google in 94? Someone oh, didn't question. do that one more Google. Someone Googled Louisa May Alcott publisher, question mark, and that came up. And <laughs> yeah, I don't know. No, it was I, a choice. Yeah, Thomas Niles and the amount of money that Alcott made, that they didn't always have a harmonious working relationship. There are some really hilarious back and forth where she asks for more money and he freaks out, which is, again, fair deal for the WGA, hopefully. Here, here. But I think there's a very common misconception that uh, just in the air and especially in kind of the reaction to my work, which is Alcott only said she wanted to be a man because women couldn't write. And that's simply not true. <laughs> It's not true. Yeah. Alcott was publishing at 17. Mm-hmm. Publish- her first book was a collection of short stories she'd written for Emerson's daughter. This was not someone who was lacking connections or access to publishing, right? Or examples of women who were publishing. Yeah. Or examples of women who were publishing. There were magazines and newspapers completely devoted to women's writing at this point. Now, that it may have been stereotypical. It may have been limiting in the kinds of stories and writing that was published, but women were publishing. Earlier this year, I'm doing the ALM degree at the Harvard Extension School in creative writing and literature. And I did the course this spring on Whitman and Dickinson. And in one of our lectures, we (laughs) 
So the, the whole lecture was about how in Dickinson's time, wit, lots and lots of women poets published, and there were newspapers completely devoted to women's poetry. But Dickinson's poetry was quite different from that. And later on in the kind of the Q&A period of the class, a male student goes, well, of course, Dickinson couldn't have published because no women were publishing poetry. I'm like, were you? <laughs> Did you? <laughs> we just <laughs> five minutes ago discussed. Oh, dear. This. Oh, dear. Yeah. So, yes, it was a viable path for Joe. It was a viable path. And it's still not enough. Right? right. Yeah. It's not that she, that's the interesting thing about this. She has, in this chapter, she finds her voice again and starts publishing again and finds a more harmonious relationship to her creative work and is still really lonely. And I think that speaks mm -hmm. to something profound that really no one, the expectation of cis men mm -hmm. is that they will have a career and a family, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They are not asked to choose either. And, uh, you know, th this is not a new or innovative thought, right? <laughs> but <laughs> the note, I think it, it makes sense that Joe can be a successful author at this point in the novel or have at least a successful writing career. Maybe not total creative fulfillment, but she's making money, she's getting published and still be lonely. And I think that brings us to this much broader, something that I think Gerwig captures so beautifully in that speech that she gives to Joe. You know, it's just women are built for more than love, but I'm so lonely, which the phrasing of that is kind of Joe gives a list of things that women are and should be. Yeah. And says, but I mm -hmm. am so lonely. She's sort of, she's mm -hmm. not saying, she's distancing herself rhetorically from women <laughs> as a group. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> women, 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 but I, which is interesting to me. And I think mm -hmm. many of us do feel that way, right? M many, many people can get to a place where, you know, they are creatively fulfilled, professionally mm -hmm. successful, they have an interesting full life with friends, and there's, you know, there's still that yearning for something. And I think, is the yearning anti-feminist? <laughs> oh my gosh, Peyton. You know? Wow. <laughs> That's a big oh, question yeah. to drop on the hour. <laughs> that is the question. It's the question. And I think I would like to see, I, I think ultimately, I think what Joe is after is companionship, I think Joe doesn't want heterosexuality. I truly believe that she doesn't. I don't think Alcott did either. I think the Professor Bear thing was a contrivance she made up to make people angry. She said as much. <laughs> <laughs> so it's hard to square like these very sincere thoughts about, can I hold my desire for a full life and a career with my loneliness and longing for a partner, along with Alcott being like, and now I'm going to troll everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Right. But I think if you're at home and you feel this way, you're not alone and you are just a regular human being like Joe. That's maybe the note I'll leave us on. What do you think, Christine? <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, I think that's lovely. And that's the yeah. eternal struggle. Yeah, I think the chapter actually ends, you know, was it all yeah. self-pity, loneliness or low spirits? Or was it the waking up of a sentiment which had bided its time as patiently as its inspirer? Who shall say? 
And I really like that mm-hmm. Alcott does leave it open-ended for us. Yeah. I think, you know, yeah. the sentence before she's, <laughs> she is holding something from Bear. Yep. So maybe we're supposed to think that mm-hmm. she's feeling the first stirrings <laughs> of love for Bear, but it can go in so many different directions. Yeah. I think I choose yeah. to believe she's being woken up to the fact that, you know, she mm-hmm. is, she's read this incredible letter mm-hmm. from Amy about the love she feels for yeah. Lori. She recognizes mm-hmm. that it is different from the love she has felt for her family and all of the people with whom she has important relationships so far. Mm -hmm. And she's sort of, she knows that she's lonely, but there's a more, there's more to experience left out there for her. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's as simple as this is the note she has in front of her. This is the memory she's holding onto as she's having those feelings. Mm. I like that Alcott kind of serves us up this moment on a silver platter and then goes, it might be self pity. <laughs> like it really <laughs> yeah. might not be what you think it is. Uh-huh. She's going to leave you guessing. Ne- in the next chapter, pretty much, we're going to get Lori coming home and Joe and Lori having their conversation and kind of putting a button on their relationship. Mm-hmm. But another thing toward the end of this chapter is she's going through kind of a memory box and looking at relics of the childhood and girlhood ended now for all. So I wrote in my notes, she's moving from no gender to some gender to too much gender. (laughs) And there's maybe a yearning to go back to that genderless childhood where really Mm -hmm. Joe could say, I'm the man of the house. I'm your fellow. I'm your boy. I'm brother to the girls. And that just seems less possible now. Yeah. I think that's a great observation. Yeah. Man. Well, Christine, thank you so much for being here today. Where can people find you online? How can they support you and your work? How can they book a visit to the Houghton Library? Oh my gosh, thank you so much for asking. Houghton Library is open to the public. You can walk in anytime and we will help you place your requests. And and if you have research questions, we'll Mm -hmm. be very happy to help you find what you're looking for. I am very sad about the death of Twitter, so don't find me there. But I am on Blue Sky at C.E. Jacobson. I think that's also my handle on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And if you're interested in the intersection of cultural heritage and fashion, I write a little newsletter every month, and it's called Lux Libris. Oh, well, definitely we have some listeners who are interested in that. The fellow Megs and Amy's in the audience will be very curious about that, I'm sure. And yes, your Instagram is C.E. Jacobson. And we had a Q&A on our Instagram at Joe's Boys Pod before the show, which if you're following us, you can ask guests questions. And we had one question. Do the Alcots have any living descendants? Obviously, Lou doesn't. But right. what about the others? They do. Yeah. I can't say too much about them and the ones that I personally know. Mm -hmm. And I'm also not an expert in this area, but basically the living descendants that are still around today come from the Pratt family. So, you know, Lulu is the daughter of May, but Lulu doesn't Mm -hmm. have any children as far as I'm aware. And then Anna has two children, Frederick and John. And many of your listeners probably recognize John Pratt as Mm-hmm. the relative that Alcott adopts formally, and he inherits the literary rights of the Alcott estate. But his brother, Frederick, has five children. So as you can imagine, okay. there, there are quite a lot of Alcott Pratt's around. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's it's mostly Frederick's issue Yeah, is where that, that family tree comes from. You're also making me realize that John Brooke and Friedrich Bayer perhaps could be a play on John and Frederick Pratt, which... <laughs> That's true. Although John Brooks is based on Anna's husband. Right? Yes. Are they? Well, he was also named John. Who was named John and had lived on Brooks Farm, 
which I think okay. is such a funny and lazy so, <laughs> way of making a character's just, name. Yeah. But yeah. So we've discovered compelling evidence that, in fact, bear may just be a straight up misspelling that has been preserved. See yeah. That evidence. That's thrilling. Well, just as far as on Ancestry.ca, we're sort of in Ellis Island typo areas of records for B-H-A-E-R and tons and tons for B-A-E-R. So it literally might just be... Alcott getting confused about how to spell that name. Sure. I'm sorry, I digress. I'm trying to wrap up the episode. <laughs> you can find Christine on Instagram. You can find us on Instagram. We are at Joe's Boys Pod. And as always, I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at PeytonThomas.ca and you can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever you buy books. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week. <laughs>